I want you to think back to one of your favorite moments that has recently happened. Maybe it was a glorious time where you were, maybe a couple of months ago at least, where you were snuggled up by a fireplace, maybe with your honeydew or your love, looking in the fire, feeling its warmth, or maybe walking outside in the morning or in the evening with the beautiful Edenic-like weather, thinking about Psalm 19, the beautiful creation that God has given you. Recently for me, I was uh, felt the exhilaration of competition and, and battle and victory. It's just so glorious. And the amazing thing about all of those experiences is how earthly they are, how physical they are. What is the source of those experiences? Not the devil, but God. God's the one who's created us as embodied souls. And so for all of eternity, we will not lose that reality. We're not dualists. We're not shedding the body and becoming these spirits. But we are embodied souls, and we will forever be embodied souls. And so those experiences are nothing but a foretaste of our future glory as we dwell and inhabit this eternal earth. And that's our hope, that's our desire, and that's the place that we want to be. Of course, there is a, an opposite reality where none of those things will be granted to the wicked. And we're going to see uh, these eternal destinies in our passage tonight. So please open up to Jude chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 16. Jude chapter 1. Verses 14 to 16, you can find the little book of Jude by going to the very back, hit the index, flip over, Revelation, one more book, and then you'll find the little book of Jude. Here's what the Word of God says. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sensual desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. So let's begin our study tonight by looking into this person of Enoch. Our text says that Enoch was the seventh from Adam. Now, this description of Enoch, the seventh of Adam, helps to identify which Enoch is being referred to. Does anybody know how many Enochs there are in the Bible? I guess it's not a place for asking questions. There's two, in fact. The first Enoch is the third of Adam, and he is the son of Cain. So you have Adam, we got Cain, we got Enoch. Cain actually named a city after this man, but this man, we can say he was on the wrong side of history, if we can borrow that phrase from the culture. Now, on the positive side, he had a city built in his name, and very likely this was probably the first city ever created. So this man had an entire city named after him, and he had the very first city named after him. But despite that fact, we know nothing about this man besides the fact that he had a city named after him and besides the fact that he's associated with the infamous Cain. All of his achievements, all of his successes, all of his fame, his wealth, his power, everything he ever committed, good or bad, has simply been lost 
in the sands of time. And in some sense, this first Enoch that we read of in the very beginning of the Bible is somewhat of a meaningless name that stands among the midst of other meaningless names. And this kind of reminds me of an experience that I often have. Two experiences. One, sometimes I walk through graveyards. I think it's a spiritually edifying experience. Walking through graveyards, realizing our finitude and the fact that we're finite. And sometimes I look at the, the graves and I just see these names. There's these names and these dates and these names and these dates. And those names mean nothing to me. I don't know who they are. The dates are somewhat interesting, but I don't know anything about these individuals. And those are tombs of people who have usually died between 100 to 150 years. Maybe you've seen this. You've gone to, if you think back to the time you've been to a graveyard and looked at the dates and the names, they were only about 150 years old, if not even more recent than that. If you go to an older graveyard, sometimes you stumble upon these. Right? You look over there, you see a little fence. You're like, what is that? You go into the fence and you, you see these tombs and maybe you have one that's 150 years and all the other ones are all washed away. You can't even see their names anymore. Meaningless names and dates. Another experience that's kind of like this is sometimes I'm walking through parks and a park bench or there'll be a tree or something and it'll say dedicated to so-and-so with their dates. Again, a meaningless name. Who are these people? What kind of life did they live? What kind of influence did they have on the world? Who knows? Who knows? They are simply lost to time. So the question is, are we ourselves living for fame, influence, and prestige? If so, consider Enoch, or consider those tombs and those gravestones. One day, that will be us. All of our fame, all of our fortune, all that we did or did not do, will simply be a name that someone will walk away and say, ooh, that's kind of interesting. And I have absolutely no memory of you whatsoever. Now that is ultimately the legacy of a man without God. They live quickly, they die quickly, and they're very soon forgotten. I mean, very, very soon. I mean, we, many of us don't even remember our great-grandparents. If you even remember them, go back one generation, and they are generally, unless they were famous, are completely and utterly lost. And this is a very sad and gloomy reality, and yet, thank God, that it's also a terribly untrue reality. Because what I'm describing is a life without God, a life where God does not exist. But there is no such life, because God is the author of life. God is pure being himself, and there is no life without God. He is necessary, and we are contingent. He has always existed, and we just got on the scene. Psalm 90 verse 2 declares, or describes it like this. He says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God has always existed. It has always been a reality where God has been there. It's kind of mind-boggling to think about God's infinitude and the fact that he's existed forever. And we, who are created in his image, will also exist forever. So those names, those people that we know nothing of, God perfectly knows them, and they still exist. And they will exist forever. They will exist forever in infamy, in shame, or eternal bliss and honor with the Lord. And that's just what we see here with the first Enoch. Even though he's been forgotten to us, he continues to exist. His story continues to unfold. He has perished and forgotten by this world, but he continues to live in the next. And so the first Enoch was famous, 
and had power and prestige in this world, but it faded away. But there is a second Enoch as well, and that Enoch we might know a lot more about. That second Enoch belongs to the godly line of Seth. And this man is described as a godly man who walked all the days of his life with the Lord, 300 years. Let me just camp out here for just one second and think about what kind of description that is. If you had one line written about you in the Bible, what would it say? I hope it would say, he walked with the Lord. He walked with God. He was faithful. He was a godly man. That's the description that we want. That's the life that we want to live, but we're not going to get that life if we don't do it. God's not going to lie. God will never lie. So this man, he's remembered because he walked with the Lord, and he eventually escapes death. And now he dwells in the heavenly of heavenlies for all of eternity. And one day, he will come back to this earth and receive an earthly kingdom that will never perish, and he will enjoy it forever. Now, let me ask you all this question. Which Enoch do you want to be? Do you want to be the first Enoch? He had power, prestige, wealth, fame. He had an earthly kingdom, a city named after him, but then he perished and he will never enjoy any of those things evermore? Or do you want to be like the second Enoch who receives an eternal kingdom that will never perish, but probably in his own day was scoffed at, ridiculed, viewed as a religious fanatic, rejected, hated? It may be tempting to want to go with the first Enoch, to be like an Esau, who we sell our birthright for a bowl of soup. For Sure, he was hungry and he wanted it right now. See, the thing is, oftentimes good things are for those who wait. Those who are willing to forego today's pleasure and to go to, through today's pain to receive later on tomorrow's pleasure. So let us not be like an Esau who simply trades the blessings of God, which are tomorrow, for immediate satisfaction. This is what the Bible says about this man Esau. It says, see to it, in Hebrews chapter 12, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. By it many have become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Would you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." You can just imagine the scene of Esau. He's hungry. He's starving. What's the birthright do to him? It's nothing. It makes him, maybe makes him feel good, but at that moment, it did nothing for him. It was only a blessing for the future. So he took today's immediate satisfaction and sold the future. And I'm sure as he's eating the bowl of soup, he's thinking, this is a good deal. This is delicious. Maybe some lamb chops in there. This is really good. But then, shortly thereafter, his meal was digested, and then he was left with nothing. He was left with nothing. Now, this is a horrible reality of Esau, but this ultimately is a picture of hell. Right? People who sold everything, sold their birthright for a bowl of stew for this few 90 years or 80 years of life. And then, when it's all up, they will simply regret for all of eternity. They sold their birthright for a meal. And this is actually the picture that Jesus records in Luke chapter 13. Jesus will say to these wicked, Depart from me, all of you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. Think about that line. Some who are last will be first, some who are first 
will be last. And indeed, how true that is. In Enoch's day, talking about the second Enoch here, many people, when they heard his name, probably thought about the much more famous Enoch of yesterday. Enoch lived in the shadow of the greater Enoch, most likely all of his life. And if you look at the dates, the first Enoch showed on the scene about probably the first 200 years of history. The second Enoch, the one that we all remember to this day, showed up around 600 years of history. So this is a significant amount of time later. And so he most likely lived under the shadow of the fame and prestige of this other, of this other Enoch. And yet today, when you think of the word, the name Enoch, which Enoch do you think of? The one that endures, the one that lasts. God took a man who was infamous and he eclipsed them with a man who is righteous. And I think that here we have a lesson. That this is what God is doing. He's taking that which is wicked and give him time. And he's eclipsing it, that which is good. So we don't think about that other Enoch anymore. He's forgotten. He's lost. We think about the righteous Enoch that walked with God and is no more. And that's ultimately God's plan. He's taking that which is wicked and replacing it with that which is good. But we just have to give him time. We have to be patient for that second Enoch to arrive. God says that his grand plan is found in Revelation 21.4. He says, Behold, I am making all things new. He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Be patient with the Lord. He is replacing the wicked and eclipsing it with the righteous. So the first reason that we have seen that Arthur and Jude identifies Enoch as the seventh from Adam is so that we know which Enoch he is referring to, the second Enoch which eclipsed the first. The other reason that he is identifying this Enoch as the seventh from Adam is to show the antiquity of the prophecy. We're not told when Enoch gave this prophecy. In fact, and we'll look at this in a second, we're not actually told about this at all in the Old Testament. You didn't just miss this in reading Genesis. It's just not there. But if you look at the chronology again, Enoch was born 600 years into the history of the world, and he was taken into heaven 900 years into the history of the world. So since he said this prophecy, it had to be somewhere between 600 and 900 beginning of the world. In other words, this prophecy is extremely old. In fact, what's interesting is if you line up all of the genealogies and you line up Adam's life and Enoch's life, what you'll find is Adam lived a very, very long time. Adam was so old that he was still alive when Enoch was born. In fact, their life overlaps the entirety of their lives except for 57 years. So Adam dies, and then 57 years later, Enoch is taken up to the Lord. What that means is it's entirely possible that Enoch, excuse me, Adam heard this prophecy from Enoch firsthand. Adam was there when Enoch was making this prophecy. And what that means is it's entirely possible that Adam not only knew about the first coming of Christ, but he also knew about the second coming of Christ. That these old saints knew about both realities. We know that Adam knew about the first coming of Christ because it's recorded in Genesis 3.15. This is called the first gospel, the Proto-Evangelium. In Genesis 3.15, it says, this is God speaking to Adam. He's still in the garden, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is a prophecy about the coming Christ who is going to be born of the woman who is going to crush the head of the serpent. This is the first coming of Christ told to Adam. 
And now, seven generations later, God sends another prophecy recorded to Enoch, which says, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly. And we know that that is the second coming of Christ. So they have both comings. They have the coming Messiah into the world to destroy Satan and the coming Messiah into the world to annihilate the wicked. Now, is it probable that they understood exactly how all of this was going to fit together? They understood the first coming and the death and resurrection and the second coming? Probably not. But we, on this other side, understand all of these realities. We have a fuller revelation and a fuller understanding and the vision of these facts. So this prophecy is ancient and old and trustworthy and true. And the last thing we discover about the description of Enoch being the seventh from Adam is just how poetic God is. Many of you know the number seven has biblical significance. The number seven represents what? Perfection, completeness, wholeness. Is it just merely a coincidence that God decides to give this prophecy to Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam? No, it's no coincidence at all. God is doing this thing. God is orchestrating these things. God is a poet. He's placing people in certain positions at certain times and raising people up to do certain tasks. And really, God has raised you up to do certain tasks. He's placed you in this place to do certain things. And so our job is to find out what that is. And often it's not really that complicated. It's to be godly. It's to be righteous. It's to follow after him. And we should be satisfied in the position that he has placed us. God is a poetic God. God was orchestrating all of this. God told Adam that he was to, in the day that he eats of that fruit, he will surely die. And interesting enough, he did die. In fact, he didn't even make it to 1,000 years. He made it to 930 years, and then he died. And everyone else he knew died. And everyone else that everyone knew died. And then the seventh generation, 57 years later, a man does not die. God is poetic. God is showing that even though his curse of death was upon humanity, that he would actually one day rescue us from death. There is an escape from death, and that is God's plan through Jesus Christ, the coming of Christ. Well, consider another way that we see the poetic nature of God. Do you know how old Enoch was when he was raptured up to glory? Anybody know? He was 365 years old. Does that number ring any bells? We have another time frame that's 365 something. It happens every single year. It's the amount of solar days that we have. Again, was that accidental? Does this prove that Enoch is a, a fairy tale individual? No, it doesn't. It proves that God is, in fact, a poetic God. And God decided at 365 years he were to take up Enoch and bring him to glory. Why? Because 365 years represent completeness. Enoch had completed his ass, he had lived a complete life. And at that point, he was actually relatively young. Remember, Adam was 930 years. He was probably equivalent to 36 years old at this point in our own time. And God, God took him. So what we see here is that we have an amazingly poetic God who does really interesting things. These are kind of like little Easter eggs. Little Easter, you, know, you know what Easter eggs are? You go and you don't see them and then you discover them. Oh, look, somebody put that there. There's a connection over here. That is the way that we have with our Lord. God does these things. He creates these wonderful things that are interesting and fascinating and that we will spend all of eternity discovering God's mighty and many works that he's done in creation. Job chapter 5, verse 9 says, God is the one who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. And I really do believe for all of eternity we're going to be 
discovering these various Easter eggs and these various awesome things that God has done. Some people have said, if God exists, why are there so many galaxies? So many galaxies that are so, so many that man will never, ever see them. There's these, or look at these tiny little molecules on these far planets that we will never see. Why did God do that? Well, because the world's not about us. We don't need to see them. They're made for God. They're God's creation. God enjoys those things because God is a poetic God. God is an artist. Just look around. You can see all his artistic beauty. I think uh, Shane used to say, I can't even remember that. I think it was a platypus, something like that. He said, if you don't think that God has a sense of humor, look at that creature. And, and I think he was, he was right there. The world does not revolve around us. It revolves around God. God is a creator. He's a poet. He's creating all of these great and wonderful things. And we should take pleasure in discovering these realities. And it will be our pleasure and our uh, joy to discover these things in eternity. It's like a great mystery, great mystery novel. That will be kind of like our life, is enjoying these great mystery novels and, and seeing those punchlines. But that is only the destiny of the righteous. The destiny of the wicked it is described in this prophecy in our passage. The destiny of the wicked is the Lord is coming. And in fact, interesting enough, uh, in many of your translation, it probably says the Lord comes or the Lord is coming. It's in the present tense. But if you actually go back into Greek, it's the Lord came. It's in the past tense. Why? Because it's absolutely certain. God's future activity is as certain as the past is. Just as you cannot change the past, so if God says it will come to pass, it most certainly will come to pass. And you can see this elsewhere if you go over to Romans chapter 8, the golden chain of redemption. Those of me foreknew, he predestined, redestined, and ultimately goes up to he glorified, he justifies, and then he glorifies. He glorified it. Our glorification is absolute certainty. It's absolutely certain. And so too here, the Lord will absolutely come. And he's coming with 10,000 of his holy ones. Now, who are the holy ones he's coming with? Well, there are two groups of holy ones he's coming with. He's coming with his angels. God is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angels' armies. He's coming with his angels, his cherubims. And he's also coming with us, his saints. And so we, going to Revelation 19, we will ride with him on these white horses. Now, somebody's interesting, interested, I can tell you my speculation about what those white horses are after the sermon. But we'll be riding with the Lord with these white horses in the sky. That's the destiny of the righteous. And then the wicked, the armies of the wicked and the Antichrist are going to be down here on the earth. And they, of course, will be obliterated. That's what our text describes, that the Lord's coming with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Do you see a repetition of words there? Something that kept showing up over and over? Ungodly. These people are ungodly people who have done ungodly deeds in an ungodly way and have spoken ungodly things against the Lord. There's a significant repetition here because you're supposed to get the point. These people are significantly ungodly. They are contaminated. There's a theological term for this. They are totally depraved. Now what that term is meant to convey on a positive level is that they are contaminated all over. It's kind of like you take a, a glass of water and put poison in it. Which area has the poison not spread to? It spreads to the, the entire person. 
They have corrupt hearts, and out of their corrupt hearts come corrupt thinking and corrupt thoughts and corrupt actions and deeds and all of these things. These people are vile. And so we need to not be deceived. There are bad trees that produce bad fruits. Their thoughts are evil. Their actions are evil. Even the ways that they do are evil. But here's the problem. We're surrounded by these people. So the first thing we need to remember is that they are ungodly. They might be our friends. They might be our family members. They might be our kids, our brothers, our sisters, whatever. These people are ungodly. We need to never forget that. Yes, we love them, we care for them, but they are ungodly. And everything they do is ungodly. And so we need to be very, very careful about that, and especially in the age that we live in. We talk about all about um, you know, baptizing culture and being culturally sensitive. And some of that is helpful. We shouldn't force people to wear ties if they don't want to. We shouldn't force people to look like us if they don't want to, and all of those kinds of things. That is all good. But oftentimes people take this cultural appropriation and think that what we, that means is that we can baptize what the culture does. And that assumes that the culture is neutral. But the Bible does not assume such a thing. It explicitly tells us, even in this passage, they're ungodly. They do ungodly things. Culture is just a collection of people's activities. So very many things that the culture is doing cannot be baptized because it's just downright evil. And to do such a thing is not to culturally appropriate or be culturally sensitive. It is to fall away from the Lord. It is to fall into sin instead of following after God. So we must, we must not put our guard down. We must not view culture as neutral, but we must recognize these people are wicked. Their thoughts are wicked. Their actions are wicked. The way they speak are wicked. The way they do things are wicked. Just because that's the way they do it doesn't mean that's the way that we should do it. In fact, most likely it's not the way that we should do it. It's kind of like being in Nazi Germany. You're in Nazi Germany and you're surrounded by propaganda for the world. It's all contaminated everywhere. You're a child and you go to a school full of Nazi propaganda. You have to put your guard up. Is this the real history? Is this the fake history? Is this the revisionist history? Is this the real truth? Or is this a lie cloaked in some truth? That's what we need to do. But the only way we can do that is realize we're in Nazi Germany instead of thinking this is our home. This is our culture. This is our people. No, it's not. Our people is God's people. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. We are surrounded by scoffers. We are surrounded by sinners. We need not to walk in their ways. The world is not neutral but wicked. And if we act like the wicked, guess what? You will suffer like the wicked. You want to look like the wicked? You want to act like the wicked? You want to talk like the wicked? You will burn with the wicked. And that's not too harsh for me to say that because that's what God says. In Galatians chapter 6 it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. What does James say? I don't want to hear your words. Show me your faith by your works. You look like the world, you'll be with the world. But you don't want to be in that place. You look like God's people, you'll be with God's people. But again, I guess you've got to be careful because sometimes God's people look like the world. So really you need to look like God's wisdom, the people of God's wisdom. Do not imitate the wicked in their folly, but imitate the righteous in their wisdom. And what is the wisdom of the righteous? Well, what does the word of God say? Go to Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the very end of Ecclesiastes. The wisest man that ever lived. He gave us a book. And here's what he said. The end of the matter, and all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's the end of the matter. Fear God 
Serve him. Obey him. Do his commandments. Be sanctified by the word. Jesus says, I'm leaving you in the world. I'm not taking you out of the world. I'm leaving you here. One day he'll rapture us up like Enoch. If we're blessed to be in the final generation or if he comes and gets us at death. He says, I'm leaving you here, but I'm praying that you stay away from the wicked one. And how are we to do that? He says in John chapter 17, verse 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. That is our weapon. That is our armor. That's how we battle the world of flesh and the devil. That's how we don't be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds and shine as lights in this dark and evil place. And that is how, by God's grace, by faith alone, but a transformed life, consider Neil's sermon, we devote ourselves to good works and we will not have the destiny of the wicked. We're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works. That's what the Bible says. You're not saved by good works, you're saved for good works. So let's put our hands to the plow and do those things. Let's devote ourselves to those very good works. We're running out of time, so let's consider two final points. Consider at the end of our passage in verse 15, it says that these people have committed all of these ungodly ways and ungodly deeds and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. He's coming to judge the people for their ungodly speech, that they've spoken evil against the Lord. Now, we've, in a catechism class of the Ten Commandments, we've been discussing the Ten Commandments. You can think back to the Ten Commandments and think, what commandment are they breaking as they have spoken harsh words against the Lord? They have broken the third commandment. Do not use the Lord's name in vain. They've treated God as an unholy thing and actually have spoken out against him and blasphemed him. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. I mean, this is, I was going to say hilarious. It's not hilarious, it's quite sad. It's like this case where this person over here is, is talking bad about somebody and saying, you know, when I see him, I'm going to beat him up. I'm gonna, he's just all of this and that. And then he walks into the room and he starts cowering off to the side. Because he spoke a big game when it came down to it. When the scenario came up, he was put to shame. And that's the world. They speak a big game, and they blaspheme the Lord and, and say, you know, they'd rather be in hell where all their friends are going to be. They have no idea what they're talking about. They speak utter lies. It's ridiculous. People will speak blasphemies against the Lord day in and day out, and they're not punished, and they think it's okay. But the Lord says here that he will, in fact, punish them for all of the evil things they have spoken against them. What this means also is we don't need to stand up for God. God stands up for himself. That's why in Romans 12, 19, it says, Behold, never, uh, beloved, excuse me, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You don't need to stand up for God. God will stand up for himself. We need to be witnesses for God. That's our part. Be a witness to point to him. But we don't need to stand up. God will handle his own honor and his own uh, the people who'll try to bring shame upon him will be put to shame. All right, last thing, and we're done here. One, uh, maybe elephant in the room, maybe not, is, uh, as I pointed out before, if you go back into Genesis, you don't find this prophecy. You don't find anything that's mentioned in Genesis that Enoch prophesied this prophecy. So where does this come from? It explicitly says that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied saying, Okay. But if you maybe look down at your footnotes or something, you might know that this prophecy is actually found in a piece of literature, but it's not your Bible. It's in the book called First Enoch. And if you go read that book, it is weird. <laughs> Some of it's edifying and helpful, 
But some of it is very weird and very strange. Okay? And that book is certainly not Scripture. So what's going on here? This is found here, not found in the Bible, but also found in the book of Enoch. Now, there are two false conclusions that we must avoid. Number one, the book of Enoch is inspired. No church has ever taught that. No church has ever believed that. Why? Because it's weird. It's also pseudepigraphic for work. It comes around, the earliest this book could have possibly been written is around 300 B.C., probably more like 200 B.C., okay? But remember, Enoch is before the flood. How did this book show up thousands of years later, supposedly written by Enoch? It obviously was not written by Enoch. That's why it's called a pseudepigrapher. It's a false inscription. It's a lie. So, no, the book of Enoch is not inspired. It's very strange. That, that is a wrong conclusion. The other conclusion is, okay, since we know Enoch is not inspired, since the Jews don't think it's inspired, no Christian thinks it's inspired, therefore Jude must think it's inspired, so Jude must not be inspired. Does that make sense? Either we can conclude Enoch is inspired, or since we know Enoch isn't inspired, then people have concluded, well, then Jude must not be inspired because Jude is quoting from an uninspired book. Those are two false conclusions that we must reject. Just because an author quotes from a book that is not inspired does not make the author not inspired. If it did then Paul would not be inspired. Because Paul does that very thing in, in Titus uh, 1.12. He quotes from uh, a peppermint. I can't say his name. He quotes from a Greek uh, prophet, and he says this in Titus 1.12. One of the Christians, a prophet of their own, said, Christians are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. He's quoting from a prophet. He's quoting from a writer of that day and quoting it to his affirmation. So simply just quoting a text doesn't make that text uh, make the person speaking that untrue. I think the solution here is I don't actually think that Jude is quoting from Enoch at all. What I think is going on here is that Enoch, that Jude is quoting from a tradition that is shared by the book of Enoch and the book of Jude. And so what I'm saying is that there's this oral tradition out there that Enoch said this thing. And that oral tradition is what Jude is appealing to, and that oral tradition is also what the book of Enoch, as they're writing this in Enoch, is also appealing to. In fact, it may be that that prophecy was the true prophecy that the Jews understood, and they decided to add on to that and write the whole book of Enoch around that prophecy. That's what I think is going on there. And to give you an example of this idea of oral tradition, and we should not be overly afraid of this idea, it's actually found in your Bibles. Maybe you want to see this. Quickly go to 2 Timothy 3.8, and you'll see oral tradition that has the stamp of God on it. This is in 2 Timothy 3.8. It says, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupt in mind and disqualified regarding the truth. Now, who are these people? Janus and Jambres. Well, you won't find them in the Old Testament. Their names are not there. At least you won't find them by name. But if you have a little study note, it'll say that these are the magicians, the names of the magicians found in Exodus. Where'd they get these names? It was from oral tradition. Remember, these are real people with real history. They remember things. They're not dummies. Right? They remember these things, and they pass these things along from person to person to person to person. And some of these things existed all the way down to the time of the New Testament, and they were still recording these names. And then they finally found themselves into the Bible here. But they got here not because someone made it up, because it was passed down from history from person to person until eventually God in his own time decided that he was going to record their names for us in all of Scripture. I think the same thing happened here, that this prophecy from Enoch was remembered by who? By Noah, right? Noah knew Enoch, and then Noah told his sons. And this kept going down, and eventually 
it was recorded and remembered and recorded in the book of Enoch, and eventually God decided that he was going to have it for us in the scriptures. So I don't think that this is uh, referring to quoting the book of Enoch at all. Let me say one last point about this. Uh, I think the reason it is even mentioned here, because really the prophecy is not that fantastic if you think about it. All the prophecy is is about the second coming of Christ. There's many prophecies about that. Why did he appeal to this one? Isn't that an interesting question? Why this one? Why this controversial text? Why would he appeal to this one? I think the answer is, is because very likely the heretics of that day really thought well of the book of Enoch. This was their favorite book. Maybe they were even teaching their heresies out of that book. And so he went and found this passage that, was, that he knew was actually a true tradition from Enoch and decided to use it against them. This is true cultural appropriation in the right way. When the people uh, of the wicked, the, the unrighteous, try to twist God's truth and corrupt it, we can use God's truth against them because we stand with God in the end. So in light of all of these things, let us conclude by just continuing to remember that there are two ultimate destinies. There's the destiny of the righteous, and there's the destiny of the wicked. And Jesus says, what is the profit of man to gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul? Hang in there, brothers and sisters. It is all worth it. We will be with him soon enough. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you for this time that we could consider your word, that we could uh, consider these individuals that we might not have thought about in a long time, the first Enoch, the second Enoch, and some of the difficulties of this passage, Lord, I pray that you would have blessed the preaching of your word, and Lord, that we would not be like the wicked, that we would not be conformed to them, we'd see them as, as wicked as they truly are, that they do wicked things and speak, and do wicked things in wicked ways, and speak wicked things about you, Lord. Help us not to be conformed to their image, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Bless us, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name.